Welcome to Marsha's Plate. This is an interview episode where we talk to friends, family, other community members, and anybody else we want to talk to. <laughs> hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sibling, how are you? Hey brother, hey brother, hey sister, hey sister, hey sibling, how are you? How you been doing? Just checking in today. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is your girl, Diamond. So we have brought back one of the queens. Look, this woman is all around the world. This woman is doing amazing representation for Black trans women. She is a media strategist, and now she is an author. <laughs> This is Raquel Willis. She has been here before, and we are welcoming her back to talk about her new book. Welcome, Raquel. Thank you. Thank you, Diamond. I'm excited to be back on Marsha's plate, honey. Yeah. Yum, yum. Yes, 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 yes. Let's talk about this, this author journey. So th this book is called The Risk It Takes to Bloom. To me, it's a coming-of-age book where you kind of come to terms with your intersectional identities, the people who inspire you, and, you know, you develop, you, you kind of showcase you developing this radical, these radical philosophies and, you know, this activist mission. So tell me what inspired you to write. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing is I felt like I had a book in me for a long time. Ah, come on. So when I was a journalism student at the University of Georgia back, I graduated in 2013. I graduated like two months before Orange is the New Black premiered. So right before Laverne Cox kind of took control of the stratosphere, that was what, like nine months before Janet Mock released Redefining Realness. Um, and so this was kind of a time of like, there were many narratives that I had access to. Um, I didn't know anything about, you know, the Lady Chablis and hiding my candy yet. But I knew that there was a Black trans experience that I wanted articulated, and particularly from a Southern vantage point. But, you know, you you start the idea of a book and you're like, okay, I can do this. And I did some writing then. Um, and then life happened. And then I started my career, started out my career not being open about my trans identity in my first job. And then I moved to Atlanta and on and on, found community organizing and things shifted. And so fast forward to 2020, the idea had been there, but now I was unemployed because I've been laid off like uh, the rest of our out magazine staff. The pandemic hit a week after I was laid off. And so I had a lot of time on my hands, honey. Uh -huh. Like, you know what? Let's do it. And so that was it. That was kind of the origin of, of when and why. It was just kind of the timing circle back around. And I think the benefit of writing it now versus maybe when I first had the inkling for it is that thanks to people like Janet and Laverne and Gina Rosero and so many others, I didn't necessarily have to start from like a one-on-one. -on -one. 
Oh, like I'm yeah. able to to hit the ground running in a way that um, a lot of our girls didn't have a chance to several years Facts. ago. Facts. I think that's powerful because, you know, we are adding to a fresh and new, but long canon of many queer iconic authors. When we think about like the old school people, like the classic, like, James Baldwin or Audre Lorde, Elin Harris, even um, even some some new people like you just mentioned, Jenny Mock, um, Darnell Moore, Cicely Bowen. You know, when we think about this kind of new era of uh, authors, why was this book important for you to bring to the canon of LGBT literature? Yeah, well, I think to your point and maybe kind of riffing off of Elin Harris, but I mean, the Southern Black trans experience has gone unsung. When I think about transness writ large, like we, it's all overwhelmingly white. So we know there can never be enough Black trans stories, but even of the Black trans experiences that we've seen literary in a literary sense, there just has not been enough. Um, the last major Black trans Southern memoir was, like I said, The Lady Should Be Hiding My Candy. That was released in 1994. Mm-hmm. I was three years old. 30 years ago. Yes. So, <laughs> I mean, I think that we have been long overdue, but I also hope that it will just serve as a bridge for the mm. story. Because um, I also know my experience is just, you know, it's as unique as anyone else's. And I've never wanted my story to be a stand-in for anybody's or to be seen as monolithic. Um, so I get real about, you know, yes, I'm a black trans woman and yes, I have had these privileges in my life that have made my career possible. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this. There's a, there's a point in the book where you have a conversation about, so just for anybody who hasn't read it, there is a, uh, there's a conversation between a character named, I don't know. Did you change everybody's name? Okay, so there there's a character that aren't changed. Uh, <laughs> and my family was like, "We don't care, girl." So I <laughs> there's a character named Kane, and there's a character named um, Alessio. Alessio, yeah. Yes, and so there's a conversation uh, where we talk about, and I think the that chapter is a woman with a boyhood. I think that's the name of the chapter. For women and with boyhood. For women with a boyhood. And Kane was kind of like talking shit about trans misogyny, kind of invalidating its existence, which is classic patriarchy to me. Um, yeah. um, but then later on in the conversation, in that conversation, Alicia was kind of saying like, girl, like you don't even know what racism is because, you know, you, you are light skinned, you are all these kind of things, these markers that kind of they were trying to, in my brain, was kind of um, invalidating and you come from a middle class family was kind of invalidating your experiences and you were like yo like I may it may not show up in the in the same ways that it shows up for you but it does show up for me in my life can you go can you expound on that a little bit yeah so this was as you said a point in college after I had met other trans folks and overwhelmingly I was surrounded by white trans masculine folks um, and lesbians, like that's kind of the interesting part, I think, of my origin story into my trans womanhood was like, I actually didn't have access to a lot of trans women. 
Um, and, and especially in that kind of collegiate space, which I think speaks to, again, you know, some of these privileges. But we were having a discussion about trans misogyny because I had posted something on Tumblr. And, you know, this was back when Tumblr was, was back all and, you know, <laughs> we was on it and stuff. Um, and it was something about trans misogyny. And this friend, Kane, um, felt disrespected that I shared it. Because he didn't know shit about trans misogyny and was saying, like, this term is a term used to keep trans men down. When I had to explain it, actually, it has very little to do with you. It's actually more about what feminine folks experience in our society and the ways that femininity is demonized kind of regardless of whatever package it comes in in our society, right? right? Whether you are cis or trans or even non-binary, right? I mean, you could even be a trans man who has a feminine expression and you might experience some trans right? So there's like layers there. But he took it as drawing attention away from this general idea of transphobia. Oh, and not to mention, because he was a little bit older and had been, um, you know, in his transition longer than me, he and Alessio, who was also my partner at the time, essentially through the fact that I had just started uh, being comfortable sharing my transness publicly, they kind of threw that in my face. So it was kind of this, situation where they were like you talk about misogyny but you just stepped in the dough yesterday (laughs) (laughs) and it's like yeah okay but you're ignoring that i've been fucking gender non-conforming as long as i can remember facts so the bullies on the playground who was calling me a sissy and gay and like a girl were already hurling seeds of trans misogyny my way so don't discount me just because your experience with misogyny has been more legible Mm -hmm. um, for longer so that was kind of the point of sharing that but i think it's also important for us to share that even within queer and trans community like we have these oppression olympics that go Mm -hmm. on right or we have these feelings of invalidation that we take out on each other without fully listening to what each other is saying. And it's a parallel. It's a kind of like a mirror or reflection uh, of when cis men, when people, when we, when black women talk about black cis women talk about uh, yeah. massage noir. And we're talking about how it's very, there's certain uniqueness that black men can carry when it comes to how they, you know, how they kind of wear us out. In that regard, they will say, <laughs> oh, y'all try to act like this is um, this is just y'all way of demonizing black men. This is misandry. This is da 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 da. This is, um, and it's so crazy how somebody could not see that parallel. It is so wild to me. It's like you you are not doing the work if you're not seeing that connection. I think anytime you're trying to like silence somebody or invalidate them. Totally, because that's really what it is. You, I'm not even really asking you to agree. I'm just asking you to listen and consider what I'm saying. But 
I mean, I think an element of privilege is this kind of desire to dominate in whatever way possible, whether it's just dominating a discussion. Mm. And I think that shows up a lot in our masculine fam, regardless of where they are in the gender experience. And I think as people who have that privilege or come from that privilege, you got to really, really work through that stuff and don't think you don't have it in you just because you have identities that may be parallels to the rest of us. Because even, you know, with trans women, I see when it comes with how they engage with cis women, I see sometimes it, it gets, it's, it's looking like some residual misogyny <laughs> that you, that's coming through. And it's then, you know, though. that's real. I see some things where I'm like, and even with um, cis gay men, I'm like, y'all, these is things that we have to work out. And it doesn't invalidate, you know, things that you experience, homophobia, transphobia, da 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 But we are all wading through these systems and we have all been conditioned to be a certain way. And sometimes we kind of just need to listen when people are sharing experiences and um, really make sure we are not um, upholding those systems. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, we can look, they're patriarchal princesses, honey. Amen. So we all got to do the work of uh, dismantling that within ourselves. And I do too, you know, so so Same. that's a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Houston's own MP Trans 101. Now listen, I know that what is basic trans 101 for me could just be the beginning for you. So this is for your basic ass. basic <laughs> for me in this life could be just the beginning for you. let's talk about love. No, I'm not talking about romantic love. I know it's close to Valentine's Day, but I want to talk about community love. (laughs) The love that we have for our community is the mechanism that moves us, that moves us from being the needy to the caretaker, to the movement organizer, to the social justice rebel, but it is also the tool that the exploiters rely on to stabilize and in some sense reproduce itself. Think about it. We are always in situations where we are not getting adequate help and resources from the state or traditional institutions. When we think about the the institutions that normally help people, um, the state, churches, you know, shit like that. We are always forced to produce a network of informal economies and harm-reducing strategies in order for us to survive and care for our people. We build the strategy from scratch, from very little help within the confines of a system. It's easy to think about like the illegal hustles, like when we think about you know, selling your food stamps, when we think about sex work, when we think about selling drugs, when we think about the, your neighborhood booster who will go to the store and boost something for you and you get it for a cheaper price and 
all these kind of economies like that. We, it's easy to think about the illegal stuff, but it's also legal stuff that people can do that not necessarily bend the rules, but they follow the rules and may do it a little different in order to help their particular people. I see this a lot in the nonprofit industrial complex where they are trying to work within the confines of the state to help their people. These imperfect strategies that we create to produce a different world free from exploitation, where our community integrates with, you know, hope and care and they flourish and they come out of the hole of oppression and poverty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These like systems don't necessarily work. They work for the time being. But the real effect of them is that with these survival strategies, it keeps laboring activists infighting, distracted, <laughs> even alive, so that the real oppressor can avoid having accountability to solve the real issue, like paying us a livable wage making affordable housing accessible and abolishing the carceral state. Like all these things that they should be doing, they're not doing. And then the people who have the good strategy, the patience, the word, the, you know, the, the get the gap to actually fix the issues or speak to the issues or do what needs to be done to move us toward the ideal world is actually fucking wearing us out and burning us out. And it replaces us with somebody else. It puts somebody else in the position. Once we get burnt out, somebody else is going to come. <laughs> it's just a, it's just an ongoing state that happens over and over and over again. Look at the endless scams, endless individual mutual aid requests that plague our newsletters, our social media inboxes. How many of y'all have got inboxes from people sending you their GoFundMes? And our care circles that we have to create for our legends like Barbara Smith, Miss Major. There's so many legends who have like these, have to have these care circles. And these requests are often for rent, shelter, food. Medical care. Look at what's happening with Rochelle Farrell. And this money is coming from our own community a lot of the time. Because we care and actually love each other. Duh. So I'm not saying that that's a problem. But the impulse to love each other by way of these individual acts of care are ultimately mechanisms that keep us available for exploitation. Do you know how? pissed I usually am when I am paying to get somebody out of jail? Do you know how that makes me feel? Not to the person. I'm not mad at the person at all. I am, I am not mad at the person at all. I want, I care for them. I know that being in jail is shitty and our cash bail system is fucked up and they might be poor, and if they lose their, if they don't get out of jail and they lose their job, they can be in a worse situation. I'm giving the money back to the state because I care for them. 
but it still pisses me off. They don't. But that I got to give my money to this fucking institution when I'm poor and working class. That shit pisses me off. Because this situation shouldn't exist. And it's just me giving money that I hustle and work for and from underpaid jobs. <laughs> I need all the coins I could get, but my money is going to back to the state. And that's just an example. That pisses me off. I'm being exploited and they're being exploited. The people I'm helping. Now, I don't want you to confuse what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that loving our community is wrong or bad. That's actually the thing that deserves our effort. Our community absolutely deserves our fight, our care, our energy. Absolutely. I'm just pointing out the exploitation. What happens is that money that we're hustling to get to the people, that's amazing. I want them to have housing and have all the things that they need for care. But where does that money go? When we get the money from the rich people, we hustle and get the gift of gab, write the great grant, <laughs> write the great proposal, make the great program. Where does it go? Yes. You do all you can to give it to the people who need it, the resources. And yes, in the moment, it helps them survive. It helps them pay their rent. It helps them get food. It helps them get health care. It helps them give all the things that we need. Absolutely. It helps them do that. But if I give somebody rent, it's just going to go to the landlord. If I give somebody money for their medical care, it's just going to go to the hospitals. If I give somebody whatever I can give them, it just circles back to the same system, the same capitalist system that we're fighting against. So it's like this hamster wheel, this cycle. So a lot of times we end up attacking and gossiping about each other out of need, loneliness, because we're trying to connect with people and be friends with people. And out of scarcity, we want to argue. And I'm thinking about, you know, if you're in the same kind of genre, the same um, community of working class people or poor people, the crab in the barrel, scratching each other eyes out just to get, you know, the little resources that we can get. We use each other to boost our egos and images to get the next gig, to get the next platform, to get the next check, all to survive, to get a, you know, to keep a roof over our head, to keep food on our tables. I nor anybody else have a foolproof solution on how to stop the cycle of exploitation that I'm trying to point out. But I'm just pointing it out in the hopes that we can make better, harm-reducing, less exploitative decisions. If that is at the forefront of our mind, maybe we can shift a little more towards the world we want to be instead of the world that we are. I'm going to still continue to love my community and do whatever I can to make them survive. But giving my money back to these motherfuckers who I know are exploiting me and my community 
pisses me the fuck off and I will continue to be pissed off. Some of the oppressors are out of sight, out of mind, and far away, but some of these motherfuckers is right in your face. They are the ones that send you the email offering you underpaid jobs. They're the ones that make claims to support you. They're the ones who do the shady shit behind closed doors in the emails and in the texts and in the things to convince you to be underpaid, to be exploited. Those motherfuckers get on my nerves too. So yes, as Dr. Joy James call it, I'm tired of being a captive maternal. Look it up. <laughs> and this is Trans 101. Oh my God, I want to thank all of our new patrons this week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yay, 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 yay. So not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know... I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my finger on the post of the community. And I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here. So you're not only helping to sustain us, you're helping to sustain other people in a community. Because I put my money where my mouth is. You know, that's just the kind of bitch I am. Community is fuck. <laughs> so thank you. I really, really appreciate you. And if you have not become a patron, why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> All righty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. There's a couple of times in the book where you use a chapter. The format, the structure of the chapter is a letter towards people. So there's one towards um, China Gibson, who is one of my good friends out. She's from New Orleans, but she was living here in Houston when she for a long time before she passed away. And then there's a, a, another powerful one to your dad. And so the letter to your father at the end, you know, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. At the end, there is an obvious moment that is, you know, a sad moment of him passing away. But also you talk about it being a freeing moment. Yeah. Because, because, you know, it gave you permission to love him, but also not surrender your life to his dreams and so I thought that that was a powerful passage because a lot of times when we are in one of the pillars of a coming coming of age is contending with your parents' dream, our parents' dream of us and making either compromises with those dreams or just blowing those dreams up altogether. Yeah. Now, it's, it's obvious with trans people that that dream can be rooted in gender identity. And um, it seems like it can seem like an alien experience to someone who is not trans. But those pressures around parents' dreams show up in career choices, in romantic partners, even your choice to start a family or not. And so don't think that this is just a trans thing. You contending with your parents' dreams is all of the issues just because of the culture that we live in. How does 
for to you, how does one free themselves without you know, something tragic happening like the death of a parent or totally cutting them off? Is it possible or does living with with a does a living parent always represent that pressure to you? Mm. Well, I think that I have the benefit of having my mom, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've been able to witness my mom's evolution. And I think witnessing my mom's evolution, although she was never quite as much of like a gender enforcer or an expectation enforcer as my father was, though she had her own and we had our moments of tension. um, I've been able to watch her evolution and that has helped me have more grace for my father, right? Even though I lost him young, there's always going to be a part of me that is like, well, would he have ever accepted me? You know, that's kind of one of the great unknowns of my life. But what helps soothe me is this idea that I should be able to give him grace that maybe he would have been able to evolve to some point if he had lived on. Though I don't think I would be the same person, Right. Because I think his expectations around black masculinity were so deep and thick and staunch that I don't know if it would have been possible if he remained a living character in my story Mm-hmm. for me to get to that point when I did. It might have happened, but it probably would have happened later, right? And who knows what would have happened. So there are a lot of unknowns there, but I think the grace piece is what helps me and I hope helps other folks. You know, it, I also I think being more mature now than when he passed, because he passed when I was 19, almost 13 years ago, actually this month. I am able to give him more of the benefit of the doubt, I guess. Like, what kind of tools did any of our parents have, especially Black and in the South? My family was also Catholic. Um, And so I try to, even though I was a hard ass, like, Mm -hmm. when I was like, oh, I'm gay, oh, I'm queer, oh, I'm trans, you know, I'm not really the most patient person. I know that about myself. You know, so it's really kind of like if I've made up my mind, this is it, right? Or if I've come to a conclusion, this is it. Um, And also, I think at that time, there just was very little language. And so I'm able to give him some grace there. And I think it's really just about us putting up boundaries, right? So like sometimes it does mean you got to cut some folks off, you know, and it might not have to be forever. You know, you might be able to circle back around and maybe y'all are meeting at the place where your your best versions can be in communication with each other. And sometimes you got to keep going. I've had plenty of friend breakup. Honey, I had some friend breakups in the course of the release of this book. (laughs) Oh, and just tensions, resentment, all kinds of feelings can happen when, you know, there's this moment of tremendous growth and change in your life, right? And sometimes people can't take. I mean, I know you know this. 
<laughs> Sometimes that's just what it is. And you gotta you gotta set that boundary. I guess what I guess where I am, particularly with my father's relationship, I'm really learning how to give up on that dream. Mm. Because it, it with my particular our situations are different. My father is a queer father, but he is a uh, anti-trans queer, uh, anti-trans gay. <laughs> and I talk about it in the very first episode of Marsha's Play called Daddy's Lessons. And there is moments, it's not a constant, because I, you know, I'm, I've, we, he hasn't been in my life almost ever. Um, but there is a feeling of sometimes, like when I see, you know, you scrolling through TikTok or scrolling through Instagram and you see these beautiful father and child moments, not having access to those memories and not having access to those experiences, sometimes it triggers me into feeling that longing, that longing that the, of uh, that abandonment comes with, that longing of wanting that feeling, that wanting that acceptance. For me, sometimes it, I have that longing and I don't have access to even trying. We don't even talk to try to... Um, build that. And so it makes me feel like, why am I not enough? There's these questions of that, that some, and it's not like I'm constantly thinking about it, but yeah. certain little moments um, do trigger that like, God, why, what is the difficulty of you not trying to build a relationship with me? Um, and so that's real though. I yeah. mean, I, I honestly, you know, not to get all Freud about it, but like, I think a lot of those dynamics, especially feelings of inadequacy or abandonment can show up in other relationships, whether it's like friendships, whether it's, you know, your relationships within movement and community and, and of course, romantic relationships. Like, I think for me, like someone was asking the other day about like dating, like, who do you date? And you know, I was talking about, um, you know, I am attracted to men and masculinity, right? So across the spectrum, dated cis men, trans masculine folks, non-binary folks who are more masculine, um, you know, and so they were asking me about like race and, you know, like all of these things. And I was like, well, I've dated people of different backgrounds, you know, but in my mind, there's always, I think, some kind of urge around this like idea of black love right and i think some of that comes from a life of having strained relationships in general with men mm. and masculine folks right like just this kind of and it starts of course i think for a lot of us with our earliest relationships of not being enough right and so then it's like okay, well, I'm not in this gender frame anymore. I'm in a different one, but I'm still holding a lot of those feelings of inadequacy. And I think that that can show up, especially for trans, Black trans women, right? It's like, I wasn't enough before. What are the ways that I can make myself more than enough now? And so it's like, I got to look a certain way, right? I got to be the girl that on call, right? Whenever you call, I got to drop everything. I got to, you know, let you be the main character and the star in, in our romance. 
I got to chase you to almost to an extent, right? To try yeah. and get you to see the fullness of me. And, and that's not even just the trans girl thing, right? Like that's a black cis woman thing specifically too. Um, but when I think about it, I don't want to live that way. Mm. I do not want to live that way. Like I'm really at a point in my life where I'm like, I am the main character of my story. I want to be the main character in this romance. Now we can co-star, but you know, you got to bring a certain amount to the table for us to co-star. You got to bring a certain amount of shine. We co-star, bitch. (laughs) And if you ain't got that, then don't expect that position. Mm-hmm. And that just is what it is. Um, so I know I'm like off on a tangent, but I think that it's all connected. These feelings of inadequacy in certain relationships and in our relationship to gender and race is so real. And I also think that there is, uh, for me, what 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 how I have worked through some of these feelings, even with my family. My mother passed away from a fentanyl uh, poisoning. That's what they called it. Um, in 2020, uh, with my re- my past relationships, romantic relationships, for me, it is not being enough to somebody is not the end of my life, though, because I'm enough for me. Right. That is where I had to learn and I had to really focus on and, and really start to invest my energy in people who I am enough for. Whether it be, I'm getting much, much more return on investment when I invest on people who I am or when I, who I am enough for and who I can bring my full whole self instead of yearning to be enough for somebody who has demonstrated I'm not enough for them. And it's okay for me not to be not enough for them. I'm enough for somebody. I'm definitely enough for myself and really turning that into living and not just saying because sometimes we can say these amazing things but living them in the practice of them the you know the theory of the thing is great but the practice of the thing can be a little bit harder to adhere to and my life my life has been trying to learn how to adhere to the the practice of the theory yeah no Mm. that's absolutely real it it is about understanding our fullness and our wholeness right so Mm -hmm. even if even if that counterpart you might be dreaming for or yearning for doesn't come honey Mm -hmm. you deserve to have a full good life right let that be the extra like if that happens nice but like we good yeah there's also a chapter called girls night out (laughs) Where the trade was trying it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, the trade was trying it. Y'all have to read to get the story. But there was a moment where that I thought was super powerful. So Mm. trade was trying it and you, you know, you was out with some sisters. And as a person who has been trans for a long time, they've been in these situations (laughs) with your girls. There was moments in there where I felt like, you know, reading behind the lines, I'm pretty sure there's other elements because there's multiple points of view in that story. But reading behind the lines, there is a 
discussion about sisterhood, discussion about sister, the jealousy that comes with sisterhood, the the um, the shade of your sister selling you out. The, this one get clocked and want to spill the beans to this one. This so many narratives <laughs> happening in this story. You caught it all, honey. Hi, honey. There was so much going on in the story. Um, and then your sister's being your savior in moments where they can get you out of a situation. And yeah. so what does, can you share what you've learned in these moments of your life about sisterhood? Sisterhood is my self-care. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's what fuels me. It's what saves me. Um, I think the trans girls, like we have our own thing, like when, I, especially black trans girls, like when I think about, you know, like the Audrey Lords, the Kambahi River Collective, like that kind of black lesbian moment mm-hmm. where there was so much thought and theory coming out, you know, and it was very like sisters are doing it for themselves kind of thing. Black trans women have always had that, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, even though it has not been articulated in media and in culture, we've always saved each other, lift each other up, despite the ideas of scarcity that exist about us, right? Or the ideas that we're just trying to compete and not even, I mean, the dominant narrative isn't even that we're trying to compete against each other, is that we're trying to compete against women who ain't even in our community, mm-hmm. which we don't actually in general interface with as much as we interface with each other, and think about the grace that happens even in competition. We, I, you made uh, me think about the um, the documentary, The Stroll, and how uh, they were surviving with each other. And they were in direct competition about money. I'm a hoe, you a hoe. We trying to make this money and get these fucking clients. And, at, and still, in the process of us being in direct monetary competition, we are still taking care of each other, calling out, saying, oh, the police is coming around the corner. Uh, oh no! Don't don't date him. He he abused me. He took me somewhere and beat me up. And but they literally still had a, a a way that they had care for each other, even in direct competition. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So I mean, I I think the sisterhood piece is I think that's stronger to me. Like that connection, that is where you know m- the most intimacy I've ever experienced has been in sisterhood mm. has been despite you know my attraction romantically to men and masculinity the deepest and most intimate relationships i've ever had have been with women mm-hmm. and you know feminine folks so what i wanted to share in that moment um that's in the story of you know being out with the girls and you know it's just the what people consider the risky behavior right of of going out for black trans women i mean i i was asked the other day you know like so do you tell when do you disclose like is is kissing too much i'm like a kiss you want me to disclose over a kiss like it used to just be if, if we was about to hook up. Now it's like, I got to tell you before I look in your direction. Like, it's just, it's in the, At the same time of us being, like, literally, non-trans women are being murdered for turning niggas down for their number. But you want That's us to, to tell RT that? So get out of here. That is it's unrealistic ridiculous. and unrealistic. 
un- unreasonable. Yeah. And I mean, I, I wanted to tell with that chapter and another chapter um, called The Labyrinth of Desire, mm-hmm. these moments that were scary that led to being threatened, but also to experiencing sexual harassment, that it really was just, I was a young Black trans girl who wanted to be seen and validated and desired like any other woman. Mm -hmm. And that I deserve to have those experiences. But the unfortunate truth is not actually that I'm trans. The unfortunate truth is that we live in a society that's still basic as fuck. And we'd rather have a conversation around what people are calling risky behaviors, which are not really risky behaviors. Me going to hook up with somebody or going out to a club is considered benign for the average cis woman, right? But for me, it's considered risky. We'd rather have a conversation about that than about these men who are so quick to turn violent and insecure when they're confronted with a truth that they weren't expecting or information they weren't expecting. That's the real conversation. The real conversation is like, why y'all not, why the factory ain't making the right kind of men and masculine folk, it's not us. Right. So, so I wanted to share that and and with that chapter two of, of uh, Girls Night Outing, show how that experience at the club is connected to these discussions that happen in media. So then I talk about the Breakfast Club and how they did our sister Janet Mock dirty. Right. And Lil Duvall went on there and he was saying his bullshit about he would kill her if he found out she was trans and he had been talking to her. That shit seeps into our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And people don't make that connection enough. Yeah. And I, if I'm sitting on the train, if you're in Atlanta on the, what is the MARTA? Or the, MARTA. If you're in San Francisco on the BART, if you're if you on the Metro here in, in Houston, uh, I could sit down somewhere next to some dude. And if he clocks me, just me sitting down, him listening to this celebrity or listening to this person that he respects, where it'd be Dave Chappelle, Lil Duval, Lil Bootsy, somebody that he respects, that language can lead him to harm me just for sitting down next to him. I ain't even got to kiss and suck his dick or, or touch him. or no, I ain't got to do none of that shit. Just sitting next to him and he clocks me can lead him to think that it is okay for him to punch me it is okay for him to kill me and that's what we talk about when we talk about it's not just words i did an article for essence and i was like six and stones it's not it's not just look it's not just words it's not just comedy it's not just jokes it literally can lead people who are mentally unstable or people who are not insecure about their manhood insecure about themselves it can literally lead to our murder it's not just jokes and they kill folks for less, right? It's not, yeah. they're going after cis women. Mm-hmm. And so when cis women talk about, you know, this idea of trickery or we trying to take your man and like all of that bullshit, it's like, we should be having a real conversation on the overlap of our experiences because we all getting killed out here. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes by the exact same people. Yeah. 
And so another element of these two chapters we talk you talk about, which I think this is another element that was really, really powerful. You talked about, um, you asked, will my body ever be mine? And um, and I think one of the through lines for through all of our experience right now, when it comes to politics, the uh, is body sovereignty. And in the in in your in 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 there's a passage where you talk about um now I had yet another entry point of domination when we when we were talking about you were talking about um your body and your surgery as a um a post-op trans woman. Um I you said I imagine maybe this is how other assigned female at birth people felt all the time. I still wonder if there was truly a difference from the vulnerability that I felt before surgery or not. The patriarchy threatened and was threatened by my existence as a trans woman. And then you go into, you know, I never really had control over my body. When I think about the non-consensual circumcision, when I think about my father and my and and their peers critiquing me and coercing behavior, how I spoke, how I talked. And then you were talking about your different experiences in college and, and later on in your adulthood where, you know, men were doing inappropriate things to your body and trying to, you know, not use condoms or touching you and groping you in a way. And so I wish people will understand that when it comes to this conversation about um, your body and your autonomy around your body, that is where you can find our relatability because that is something that is always under attack with us. I think that we just don't talk about that enough, right? Like, and that's the entry point as well for men and masculine folks to talk about their own body sovereignty, right? Because yes. the patriarchy strips it from all of us to varying degrees. Facts, absolutely. Varying degrees. I mean, it's just, we could be having such a richer conversation if we focused on that, right? On how violation, how violence is such a feature of all of our lives in this society. We can really break down what is happening to men and their body sovereignty instead of it just being used as a rebuttal to us calling y'all out about y'all shit. Because sometimes they just fucking bring it up. Well, what about men who was molested by women? What about the women that do this? What about older women that go after younger guys and blah, 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 blah. Y'all only, y'all don't bring that up because you want to dismantle it. You bring it up as a, as a rebuttal to us calling you out about your shit. I wish we can get to the point where, yes, there is that is a problem. That is a problem with, you know, boys being molested and, and being touched and da-da-da-da-da-da. You're at a club and, and a cis woman touches you just because they feel like, oh, you're a man. You can do that to men and you can accept it, even though it's making you uncomfortable. We should be able to talk about that. But y'all make jokes about it. Y'all sit on Twitter and all these other places and make jokes about men who've been violated. Look at how y'all talked about Terry Crews. I don't fuck with him. But think about how <laughs> how y'all talked to anybody, any man that comes out and talks about the difficulty he has had with a situation where somebody was trying to sexually manipulate him. Y'all make jokes about it. Y'all don't take it seriously. So how can we have a richer conversation? The depth of conversation could be more if y'all just accept that. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I mean, I, I think a perfect example is like when something like what Lil Boosie did to his child. Yeah. 
molestation. Yes. To try and ensure that his child was straight. And liked pussy. <laughs> like what? You didn't. I mean, <laughs> he either gonna like it or he don't. Yeah, because I know a bunch of gay men who done had some pussies had babies. In, and that wasn't their thing. So or or they only dive in when it's attached to a man, right? So a trans man, because that's the whole thing now. Yes, now. So, but that is a violation. And then, you know, if a guy says that that happens, it's men overwhelmingly who are like, you know, doing barking and like, oh, you did it, you know, like giving them the dap and the hit, all of that celebration, even though that's a violation. Right. They care more about being validated in their masculinity and manhood, even if that means that a violation has occurred, which is connected to rape and sexual assault. It's connected to the abuse that is saying you don't want a queer child, or if you have a queer child, you might kill them. Like what's his name? Tracy Morgan said several years ago, or any of these people who throw these Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart. So we have such a culture of violence and, and violation. Carisha. Carisha. <laughs> I mean, and, and uh, Santana, didn't he and say? And Santana. Yeah. It's so disgusting. And, and it's not just a Black thing, right? Like, we have our own relationship to gender and all of these things. We can talk about the particular ways that we want to be respect respectable and assimilated in the face of white supremacy. But white people do this too. They just maybe aren't as vocal about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or we're not privy to it because we're not fucking white. That too, right? <laughs> I'm not at your dinner table. So no. I don't know what's going on. Uh, all I know is this raisins and the potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so soon as you release that you were going to have a book and you release the pre-order, I was the bitch was like, oh, did snatch my money. Go ahead. I got it. So in 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 my life, I wish that I had a book like this because coming up in the 90s, there wasn't other than Lady Chablis. And, you know, even... But did in, you know about it, right? Because it's also I, like... I knew about her movie because she was in movie, um, yeah. um, Midnight in the Garden of Eden. Garden, Garden of Evil, something. Garden of Good and Evil, Midnight yeah. in the Garden of Good and Evil. Yes. I knew about the movie. And so, in turn, I knew about the book. But because it was the 90s and I come from an era of um, girls, <laughs> I come from an era. And the identity was was subtly different then, yes. right? I mean, you were a transsexual. She never saw herself as yes. That. You know, she saw herself as a trans woman, as we would say now. But I think she probably used transvestite interchangeably, and yes. she was a drag performer. Yes, and so there was a level of disconnect that happened because I come from a generation where. I have evolved, but at the time it was, I just want to blend. I just want to blend with society. I just want to da da da. I don't want to do none of that. Da 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 da. So it was a certain level of disconnect that I didn't even see myself in her. Yes, blackness, yes. But 
it was just a level that I just wasn't on in my teens. And so, but I did wish that the, the thoughtfulness of this book, I do wish I had something, which, you know, look, we have it now. So that's the beauty of evolving and the beauty of growing and passing the torch because people coming up will have that experience now. When you were writing this, it, did you did you have the mindset that this is for future generations or you just was telling your story? What was your mindset about that? Yeah, I did. I I, I think it was always a both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to be able to turn off what I hoped this would be for other folks so that I could just get the story out. So there was mm-hmm. a point where I had to be like, okay, forget that for a second and just write and just be as vulnerable as possible. And I had some uh, early like feedback. Janet Mock gave me some early feedback. And um, I had some other friends um, and my sister who gave me, um, my origin sister, who gave me um, feedback on just being more vulnerable on the page. Mm-hmm. So, so that was a thing. But I, I didn't know that this book would, I don't know, have to be something to the unnamed, the faceless, and maybe the unborn at, you know, at that point, because that's so much of Black trans history, right? It's like, we have to find the breadcrumbs and the nuggets. And even if nobody read it today, like, hopefully somebody, you know, 15, 30 years from now, would find it and be like, oh, this woman wrote this. That speaks to my experience, you know. Um, I hope that could be that. And then also, I mean, we live in a time of book bans, curriculum bans. I mean, I'm constantly thinking of the the Nazi book burnings that burned a lot of, like, archive trans history um, from people like Magnus Hirschfeld, right? Mm-hmm. So, like we lost things along the way too that we will never get back because of the eras of intense fascism and hate. So there's also always that fear, right? Will will my legacy be completely obliterated? Right. I think that that, I think when you said breadcrumbs, that was powerful too, because, you know, even throughout the string throughout each chapter, there are these moments where you are kind of, I don't say not name dropping isn't the right thing, but you kind of just giving connection to other things in the culture that is, you know, that could spark somebody in the future reading it. They'd be like, oh, what is she talking about? Like, what is this? Even, you know, like talking about China Gibson and talking about, um, you know, some clubs in Atlanta that you reference and, you know, just different historical moments, moments that when when I look when I look in my past, I was like, oh, yeah, the jungle was a staple ass fucking club that I re- I wasn't even in Atlanta. But I remember, hey, when we when we go to Atlanta, we about to go. We're going to go to the jungle. It's, it's that kind of element. And I'm somebody who I went to the original Frank Nick as a teenager, as a teenager. So there's certain things that, um, you know, that are staples of that era. And I was like, oh, yeah, she just she mentioned that. And so I think that this is an important book in regard and recommended to me for everyone, but especially um, providers like who if you were trans folks. But if you are you pro- provide services 
for um, trans people. I think it's really, really important that you read this book. I think um, not only is this a unique memoir, but yeah, I think it's unique. I think it's unique because like you said, I think that it's, um, it's a Southern point of view. And so it gives a context that look, black, most black people in America live in the South. Most queer people in America live in the South. <laughs> Let's just say that. I know the focus is on the West Coast and the East Coast and da 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 da. But the numbers, the data <laughs> said that okay. most Black folks and Black queer folks live in the South. And so we need more stories from that region. And so that's why I feel it's powerful and unique. And I talk about it in the book. Like I grew up, you know, it was like if you any kind of different go to New York City or go to <laughs> San Francisco. That was it. I mean, I don't even remember shows that were based in Georgia on, on nice. like sitcoms and TVs. I don't remember any of that, right? Um, I don't remember anything based in Texas. Dallas, <laughs> but that wasn't for us. Right. That was before I was born and that wasn't for us. So like all of that. Um, so I, I hope it can add to that like Southern canon. But also, I mean, the other part of this is that it's a a dispatch in a way of a young black trans millennial who also lived through the height of the movement for black lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so we don't have much of those experiences documented um, or this kind of era that I consider to be um, the height of like black trans movement, you know, like witnessing, you know, when Elon Nettles was murdered, right? Like I really see that as a, a pinpoint of like, that was a Trayvon Martin situation for a lot of black trans folks right in terms of organizing um because by then you know we had these kind of uh figures like public figures rising like janet and laverne right who tapped into those moments or like what happened to cc mcdonald you know like we have so much of this and of course monica roberts archived and and documented so much of that for us um and was such an inspiration and you know honestly if i were to add a letter it would have been to her right unfortunately her passing came in the process of of writing the book and finishing the book but you know she is a north star to me in terms of storytelling um and black trans power because mm-hmm. she, she had the audacity to be like we deserve news that's just about us yeah stories are enough and you know what's that's that's so powerful because i see that seed in all of us like people who are creating content now and creating things and and rising to the occasion of this kind of trans renaissance because i remember in my own experience the first and this is years ago this is before any of this this is like 1999 when i sued when i sued my high school my aunt called me and said that somebody wrote in the paper about me suing them. And when she told me the name, it was Monica, because Monica lived and had a column in Louisville, Kentucky, which is an hour away from Indianapolis. And I was like, she just was saying that somebody wrote about you in the paper down here. 
And fast forward to 2008, because I started I started my YouTube channel in 08, right. and she started Transgrio in 06. And so I'm cert- I'm because I'm trying to do the video form. I'm searching shit on the internet, and she keeps popping up, keeps popping up, keep popping up. Like the Transgrio keeps popping up, and I'm like, who is this lady? And we meet each other in Charlotte, North Carolina. And she talks about, and she tells me, she says, yes, I wrote about you in my column in in, in Louisville, Kentucky. I was like, what? It was you? And she was like, yes. And she just, she just is this seed of inspiration of, like you said, a North Star of what we all are doing now. Well, not all of us, but what we are doing now in in regards to who is creating media, who is steering media, consulting media. And so that is a beautiful legacy of Monica Roberts that I that I think is powerful. And I think that it shows that like keep going. Yeah. I mean, that legacy is is strong. I mean, I was in college. I mean that I found Transgrio in college, probably like 2011. So that's wild because I was in journalism school, and you know we weren't saying nothing about no black trans people. (laughs) But then when she passed in 2020, I went through her archives. Uh, online and you know I was just reading different things I was like oh she had wrote this one thing about me and so I typed in my name she had written a couple of things about different moves I had made in my career and her being proud like when I was became editor at Out Magazine there was a post and you know like that touched my heart yeah I love that. So shout out to Monica Roberts. We love you. We miss you. You, you know, I, you know, I think um, Oprah was talking about it when she talked, she was talking about legacy and how Maya Angelou was telling her about legacy. And she was like, you, you won't know your legacy because your legacy is everybody that you have touched. And what we keep, what I, what I keep seeing, we, as we're talking about it now, what we keep seeing is just how many people Monica has touched and steered in this kind of direction of trans renaissance and excellence. And, you know, shout out to her. Yeah. And shout out to you. I try to do my thing. (laughs) You doing, you are doing always. Archive is long too. It is. So tell us what's next for you. What is what is on the horizon? What what is coming up? And you know what's what's going on in Raquel Willis's world? Yeah, well, I have a few new you know book ideas that are slowly percolating. So I don't really have much to share yet for those. But I am hosting um, two podcasts. So one is out. It's called After Lives. And I'm doing these with iHeartMedia's Outspoken Network, which is the LGBTQ network. Um, But Afterlives follows the life of Laylene Polanco, a 27-year-old trans Afro-Latina who died in Rikers custody in 2019. So we talk about her life, her legacy. She was in the house of extravaganza. She was a sex worker. She had schizophrenia and epilepsy. And she was held in solitary confinement. And to have certain uh, mental health disorders and be held in 
solitary is considered torture by UN standards. So her entire story brings together all these different intersections. Um, but she also inspired a lot of the micro movements in New York, whether it was the decrim sex work movement or the in Rikers or in bail um, fights. Um, and then, of course, her family was affirming. Right. So yeah. I think the other thing about her story that's interesting is that she had an affirming origin family. She had chosen family. She had ballroom family. And still, you know, the she system, could not get out of jail for five hundred dollars. Right, gobbled her up, unfortunately. Uh-huh. So we tell that story. I, I call it empathetic true crime. You know, so we've been in conversation with the family, um, and it, I think it's a really powerful uh, uh, story. So we are diving into her, and then. The second podcast comes out in March. It's called Queer Chronicles. And so this one is an intimate portrait of the experiences of queer folks around the U.S. But this first season is focused on queer and trans youth in red states. So we got somebody mm. from Dallas, somebody from Alabama, um, and a bunch of other spots. Um, but we're doing deep dives into y- how young people are navigating love and romance accessing healthcare like HRT, their mm-hmm. self-expression, um, and on and on. So there's like round tables. They kept an audio diary. So we have like these little like voice notes from them, a bunch of different things, interviews. So it's been great. Ah, oh, that sounds Happy amazing. March. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. So look, you are have definitely risen to one of my favorite trans voices that has come out in the past 15 years. That's a big Um, deal. (laughs) It it, it is. Like, it it is because I, you know, as somebody who cares about community and, you know, watch everybody. (laughs) I I watch everybody to see what they're doing and see um, how they're growing and what what they're contributing to the movement. And there are some standout people and you are definitely, 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 definitely one of those people. And, you know, when I met you, you were so gracious. I, I met you at the TransFitCon conference and you, you modeled for oh, me. Yes. Yes. This was like 2014. Yeah. 2014. We were, we had a conference of what the very first conference. Where I was a baby. I don't think were. I was out at work yet. No, you weren't. Mm-mm, yeah. And we we had a uh, me Neo um, Neo Sanja um, and other folks I can't remember um, uh, Bucky Motter it was a couple of people um, uh, we we had thrown this conference and it's the brainchild of Neo Sanja of trans bodybuilding and so it was called TransFitCon and this was, and I think this was seeing right. Yeah, I was emceeing and I was behind the scenes. We were all um, a part of um, creating this moment. And in the in the moment when we had we were this was like, I think our second or third year. And we were we had a fashion show and um, some of the models didn't show up. So we had to get um, Michaela. She is the um, the co-director for 
policy, policy and programs, policy and programs at um, Trangeta Law Center. Um, yeah. And you, y'all came in and we was like, hey, yo, uh, Michaela was giving Grace Jones. You was giving yeah. sex, sex kitten. I was like, oh, <laughs> let's ask them if they would do it. And y'all came up and killed it. And it was so amazing. I was like, oh, the baby, the baby is going to be all right. <laughs> Oh, that was so fun. I can't, I forgot that that was where we met. Yeah, that is literally where we met. And it was such a, you know, uh, just a just a moment. Just because uh, I've run across, you know, tons of young trans women just as being my age. I'm 43. So I've, I've come across so many young trans women. And to see you just kind of blossom into this media maven has been fucking amazing to see. I am so proud of you. You are definitely great representation. And I appreciate what you give to community and, you know, just who you are. I love it. Thank you. I appreciate you. I mean, you pave the way and continue to pave the way for the girls telling it like it is reminding the girls it has not always been this way <laughs> so be grateful of what you got um and keep working it out and i mean you're just a constant i mean you're a pillar you know a pillar of the community especially for the black southern girls like we only have so many of our icons um with us right and and i mean the fact that you have been leaving your mark so young right because only 43 right but (laughs) the resume speaks for itself um it's wild so thank you for being a possibility model thank you thank you thank you give me give me give me euphoria more than peace of mind it's the joy in space to change the tide. Give me, give me, give me euphoria, more than peace of mind. It's the joy in space to change the tide. Give me, give me, give me you the feeling and the high you never come down from. Whoa, 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 whoa. All right. So last but not least, this is what we end the show with every single time. Because we so focus on our disparity as trans people um, mm-hmm. and kind of focus on dysphoria, I like to talk about, I like to focus at the end on euphoria. Something really, really simple. It could be mundane. It could be deep. It could be whatever. But what is bringing you euphoria this week? Being back in my bed, honey. My own bed, no hotel bed, nobody else's bed, my bed with my fluffy comforter. I have a little weighted blanket, honey, to keep me grounded. That's what's bringing me joy. Uh, I love that. (laughs) What is bringing me joy this week is we have been this week at the Creating Change Conference and seeing the leadership there. There's a Black woman leader, um, Kiara, what's her last name? Johnson. Kiara Johnson and just seeing her maneuver some of the hot moments and maneuvers that, you know, even threats of um, protest and how she handled it and just just the beauty of how her as a leader handled it and stepped up was so brought me joy. And just being a community at Creating Change and avoiding some of the fires that I saw around me. And... <laughs> 
little fires everywhere. It was little fires everywhere. And so uh, me avoiding them and being about my business and uh, minding Diamond's business and doing her thing that she does. And but still being in community and learning how to be in what Kiara talked about. Um, Principled struggle. Principled struggle. Mm-hmm. principled struggle and you know we ain't gotta totally agree but we can be in principled struggle together and that ministered to me and I thought that that was dope and brought me euphoria this week so y'all hit us up hashtag marches plate and make sure you let us know what has brought y'all euphoria this week so tell the people where they can find you you can find me at RaquelWillis.com, R-A-Q-U-E-L-W-I-L-L-I-S. And the book, The Risk It Takes to Bloom, you can get it wherever you get fine books, honey. Um, if you can't find it locally, I would suggest ordering from bookshop.org. Love them. And then the podcast, Afterlives and Queer Chronicles are both available and going to be available wherever you get great podcasts. So, mm. And I will have all those links down in the bottom for you to check it out. Yes, go check out the book and be amazed and be inspired. And yes, thank you, Raquel, for joining me. Thank you, darling. <laughs> thank you. Oh, my gosh. Always a pleasure. Always. Oh, so good. And we will see y'all next week. Bye-bye. Bye.